Hey everyone, Mike here with the Heel Come Homes podcast, and it's been a little bit since we've come to you with a new episode. Uh, the month of January, right after Christmas, everybody's scrambling to uh, to get into the new year, but we we made it. We're finally here, and today I have Jade Flotus with me, and we have a great episode for you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Hey, Jade. So I know that you were out with the flu for a little while, and um, now that you're you're back in the seat, um, how has uh, the start of 2020 been for you? The start of 2020 has been amazing. I think we, this year, just for January alone, we hit a record uh, for the company. So we funded almost $4 million. Actually, I think it might have been $4 million for the month of January, which is absolutely amazing. That was just for San Antonio alone. Wow. So that's not including any of the other states that we uh, service or any of the cities for that matter that yeah, we yeah. service. So January has picked up a lot, which is awesome. So one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting was, um, uh, and, and I'm like speaking from experience of past years, uh, is that normally, and, and I know that's common in the real estate industry normally like the months of november december things kind of slow yeah. down um, and that was definitely true for for this year um but uh what i what i saw that was surprising was almost immediately at the beginning of of, of january um everybody was back and it was like, yeah. a, like a buying frenzy yeah no like literally like january first hit and there was just this huge spike i mean like out of nowhere because last quarter was very slow for the for the most part um yeah, yeah. it was it was steady but it was slower than normal which is pretty normal um i think the end of the year uh typically people are traveling and you've got the holidays that come up. And right. so it's normal to see an increase that following month when January hits, this one was abnormally active. Um, and of course I had to catch the flu during that month too, which right, was, right. oh my gosh. And then I have three kids. So that was crazy, unexpectedly crazy. <laughs> um, so it was it was good that we made it through. Our team was awesome, um, and we hit the record. So I'm excited to see what February holds. Yeah, yeah, and this month is uh, actually the year is uh, uh, set up to be a really strong yeah, year. Yeah, yes, I agree, and I'm excited for that. We have quite a bit of activity already going for February, and we're in what day is it? Second or third? It's the second. <clears throat> Golly, yeah. So we've got a million dollars on the board right now just for February. Um, so I'm excited. I think a lot of people are getting back out there, um, getting more active in the in the real estate community. Well, you know, whatever uh, these investors are going to do. But um, I also think it's a, a really strong indicator of we're at the peak of the market. So mm -hmm. like we're yeah. we're we're at a point where we are about to turn and market. Uh, you know, home values are going to start dropping. Yeah. Inventory is much bigger than demand. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, that was kind of what we were seeing with, uh, going into like October, like the middle of mm -hmm. October is that, um, it, it wasn't so much that, um, you know, investors were starting to take the break it was, or that sellers were like, Oh, Christmas is coming up. I don't want to yeah. deal with that. Um, but there, there was a, a real tangible, uh, something in the market that, uh, it's, it felt like it was, it was stagnant. 
I think I think one of the factors is that people were sitting in their homes. Um, there is there was a surplus, and there is a surplus of inventory, like you said. And the problem with that is that buyers become pickier. So I know for me, not necessarily as a lender, but as an investor, my homes were sitting longer. Like typically a home that I'd have that would sit maybe a couple of days and I'd have full market offer was sitting like 30 to 60 days, like twice as long. Um, and, and the buyers were pickier, you know, there was more contingency requests. There were more, um, concessions, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think also uh, to kind of like some other data to support that is the fact that, and, and I talked about this uh, almost a year ago about um, wholesalers who are selling contracts at 80 to 82% mm-hmm. all in that. Uh, and I, and I said, you know, back then, and I still say that now that uh, when you get to a point in the market where the, the typical educated investor who is disciplined with what they do will not purchase over right. 70, 75% ARV. And we have wholesalers that are doing deals at like almost 85% ARV. And they're selling it to newer investors who don't know And they're selling, right. And uh, and that creates a problem because first of all, you are overinflating the the market values of these properties. And then secondly, you're getting these investors who um, maybe, I know the majority of them are new investors and they're they're hungry for deals. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also have the other group of investors who they know what they're doing and they're willing to take that risk. Um, and that's, that's kind of where I think it builds to that tipping point where, um, in the market where we see right now that, you know, prices are great. It is hot. Lending is still very liquid. Um, and investors can do these deals. Um, but like you said, investors are getting pickier because these, these prices keep going up and it's like, well, where's the ceiling, you know, where is it safe to stop or where, where is it, where do you draw the line in terms of risk? I agree with that. And so even for us, from from the buying standpoint, we used to buy from wholesalers all the time. And about four or five years ago, I think we talked about this last time, the, the, the ceiling was 65% of after repair value. Right, right. You could find deals on MLS that had a ton of meat on the bones. Mm-hmm. And it, it I think that um, because so many people have watched these wholesalers advertise what they do, uh, there's become this new market for a bunch of new wholesalers coming in. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing a, a thing about this right now, uh, trying to educate uh, new wholesalers, but they don't understand. And so a lot of them are just throwing out these 80% deals right. and some of these volume buyers or the newer wholes or the newer, um, investors are, are purchasing them. And you're right. The problem is not necessarily on the purchase. It's on the resale because when you go to resell that as an investor, they're sitting longer and, or they're trying to ask too much in order to compensate for how high of a percentage deal that they purchased. That's becoming problematic. Um, not only with the market, but even with us as lenders, we're seeing borrowers sitting in deals longer because of that. Um, yeah. You know, you, you want a higher price, and so your days on market are going to increase. So, uh, yeah, the, the market's definitely changed in that sense. I don't know when it's going to stop. I guess yeah. when people stop buying the deals, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that's one of the interesting things about 
this particular industry not not real estate as a whole but like the sub market of, of investors because yeah. um, right now it, it is a good market it's strong and, and the thing that's good about it is mostly the liquidity aspect you as an investor can borrow <laughs> funds um, from a hard money lender from someone who is another investor that could do private money um, you can borrow from you know traditional banking institutions to yeah. get the FHA um, on or even a conventional loan on an investment property and rates are still really great too. right yeah. right so that's that's the upside because you can still get into a deal that has a higher percentage all in and still make it work but even in a down market it's even it's typically even better for investors because yeah. you have lower price points and you can yeah. you basically just ride the wave and wait until the price the market values come back up and yeah. then you're you're good again. Right. Um, but you monopolize you know, off of that. Right. And, and real estate as a whole, that's generally not not the case because if you're in, in on the retail side, um, and you know. Yes. The, you know, market values come yeah. down and then people can't get FHA or conventional loans as easy, then it's harder to sell your inventory. Uh, and that is problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, the, the thing we wanted to talk about today for uh, today's podcast episode, um, and, uh, and I thought that this, this was a little interesting. It's a different perspective on uh, previous conversations, but um, you as a hard money lender, and we talked about how investors look for hard money lenders, what they should be aware of, what questions to ask, and things like that. But uh, you know, let's look at the opposite side. You as a hard money lender, what do you look for in a borrower? You know, your clientele. What kinds of questions do you, do you ask? You know, what what things uh, do you keep in mind? You know, for for not just better business or for growing business, but maintaining a certain level of quality of that business. Like, what, what does that look like for you? Um, so first and foremost, liquidity. We want to make sure that the borrower uh, has enough money to be able to not only support the renovation costs, but also to be able to um, pay for those monthly holding costs as they go to resell that property. So liquidity is the biggest factor for us. Mm-hmm. We don't look at debt-to-income ratio. Um, We don't look at a lot of things that traditional lenders do. But one thing that we are very pertinent on is the fact that the borrower has enough money to be able to be successful. Um, Some lenders are a little bit more lackadaisical because they benefit off of taking properties back. But us as a lender, we're not interested in that. Mm -hmm. We really just Mm -hmm. want the borrower to be able to succeed. So for me, when somebody comes to me and they're like, hey... I'm a new investor or even experienced investors. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm interested in doing this deal. I sit down and I look at every deal individually and I figure out uh, what percentage the deal it is, what Mm -hmm. cash out of pocket is going to be, what is their monthly holding costs, and what is the size of their renovation. And then from there, I work with the borrower to to cross-reference how much money they have. And every borrower is so different. Some borrowers come to me and they've only got $10,000 to their name, and but they want to yeah. start investing. So their qualifications and what they're going to be able to do is a little bit more limited than a borrower that comes to me and has you know, $80,000. Yeah. Some borrowers even have million dollar portfolios and they still leverage. Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of what we're looking for, liquidity, um, and that's going to drive what type of investing you can do and what size of the deal that you can do. Right, right. And so, uh, does that look different for a new investor versus a experienced investor? Um, I mean, I would imagine like, as far as a new investor goes, you have like 
really two groups of people. You have the one who's the new person who has never done anything in real estate and their, their main motivation is because they can see the potential of financial freedom, Mm -hmm. but they have nothing right now, but they need somewhere to start. Mm -hmm. Um, and and then you have on like the other side of the spectrum where you might have a, a working professional, maybe a firefighter, police officer, uh, you know, teacher that they have something saved up in retirement that they could possibly tap into to jumpstart their real estate investing. Um, but at the same time, have no idea what they're doing when it comes to real estate, because that's so outside of the scope of what they normally do. Um, and, and in both cases, because they're new, they don't know anything about real estate, but mm-hmm. their financial history is very, different. very different. Yeah. Like how do you evaluate each of those and the types of deals that they bring to you? So an investor that comes to me, regardless of whether they're new or not, um, if they come to me. Again, we're going to look at how much money they have. If it's somebody in a professional uh, environment and they have a retirement account that they're looking to liquidate and pour into real estate investing, mm-hmm. and we'll say they have, you know, fifty or sixty thousand dollars saved up, and they come to me and they're like, "Hey, this is what I've got. This is what I'm looking to do," they're going to be more qualified <clears throat> than somebody that comes to me who has ten to twelve thousand dollars. And the the tricky thing is. Both people don't understand real estate necessarily, and they've never done rehabs. So they don't understand what goes into a rehab. And so my job, aside from the lending aside, my job is also to try and educate them on that, right? Mm -hmm. So if the guy that has $60,000 comes to me and he's got a $50,000 rehab, you know, that would be okay. It's something that he can sustain until he makes his draws. Um, if there's overage on the project, it's something that he has enough liquidity to be able to cover Mm -hmm. and maintain, right. So that he can get through that project. Yeah. yeah. Now, if that on the flip side of that (coughs) pun intended, uh, (laughs) the guy that has $12,000 comes to me and he says, Hey, you know, I've got this downtown historic property and it's going to take $60,000 $60,000 to fix up. Yeah. I'm going to say, buddy, you don't have enough. You, you're shooting too high right now. Mm-hmm. So in that case, I would steer him back into the direction of more of a cosmetic renovation, right, something right. that you're not doing, um, you know, a huge foundation lift, new plumbing is you're not re-piecing the house together. Mm-hmm. Something that's a little bit more cosmetic paint, flooring, um, something that he can get in and get out of successfully to be able to sell, retain some profit and then continue investing. Right. Right. So aside from just the lending, I try and educate them on that because sometimes I've noticed, particularly with the newer investors, they're overly ambitious. And while that's great, you want to have, you want to shoot for the stars, right? You want to be realistic and you want to make sure that, you are able to support that renovation. Yeah, well, it's, it's like that classic conundrum. Like you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. You know? No, so exactly. You have, yes. you have certain expectations going in. Yeah. Um, and everybody has a different, uh, I guess, a different position because maybe you've been going to these seminars for like two years and you're finally ready to pull the trigger and you've yeah. heard, um, you know, different perspectives of different investors that have done what you want to do versus someone who maybe just watches HGTV, mm-hmm. you know, like there's going to be certain standards and certain expectations coming yeah. in. But, but no, I, I, I think that's, um, 
I think that's true for any industry, but in particular, just because we're around the real estate, like that's fairly common. Like you just don't know what you don't know. And 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 you also hear about all the good, right? Yeah. So a lot of times these investors, they follow other people or they follow HGTV. (laughs) You hear all the good. And so what you don't hear about is my contractor just stole all my money. Mm Mm-hmm. Or my house got robbed and they just took out all the brand new appliances that I just put in the home. Yeah. And I need another two or three thousand dollars. Or, oh my God, that seller put me into fraud and he actually made a roof claim on the house. And mm-hmm. so now I'm eleven thousand dollars out of pocket on yeah. something I didn't originally anticipate. So you hear all the good, but you don't necessarily hear the bad. So it causes you to be a little overly ambitious. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that brings up a point. I don't think we've actually touched on this before, but, um, how do you work as a, as a lender during that time that, you know, you've lent the, the funds to the investor before they can either refinance out or sell it and, and pay out the loan? Um, what does that uh, process regarding the insurance on the property look like? Because, you know, like, like you said, if someone yeah. goes in and they vandalize everything that they yeah. just did, or they steal the copper out of the pipes or, yeah. um, you know, they, someone walks away with, uh, you know, the, um, the condenser HVAC. unit. For yeah. The yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like what, what does that look like? How do you protect, um, yourself as a lender, but also the borrower as a, as a client. I mean, that's their investment property. Right. Well, so it depends on their insurance policy. Everybody's policy is going to be different mm-hmm. in terms of their deductible. So the first thing that they need to do is get in contact with the insurance company. If their deductible isn't super high and it makes sense for them to be able to make a claim on the property, we're the mortgagee on the clause. Mm-hmm. So we have to sign off on any insurance checks that come in. Okay. So what will typically happen is the borrower will make a claim Um, for whatever it was that happened and the insurance company will send us the check. Uh, we endorse it and we put it into their escrow account for them so that they can get funding out from there. So the, the process is pretty easy in terms of that. But, um, going back to that, make sure that if you are buying in certain areas of San Antonio, particularly downtown and higher crime rates, Try and make sure that you have a lower deductible just in case something like that happens. Yeah. And I would also say too, um, you know, not, not just doing your research on what the crime rates are, and, but also what kind of crimes are right. happening because right. that will also determine what your game plan is going into the renovations right. because like you don't want to change out all the windows and then go inside and, and start doing stuff. If one of the biggest crimes is people driving by and breaking windows, right. because then you're going to have to be replacing windows the entire time process of your rehab mm-hmm. um, same thing for the HVAC units if yeah, you see that's that that's one of the last things you should be putting in yes and even for us so on one of our properties that we had downtown and any property for that matter that we have downtown if we know that there's a high crime rate we put bars mm-hmm. and we cement them down and we put bars on them it costs a couple hundred bucks but it's worth it because we know yeah. that during that time that we're listing actively listing that property it's not going to be able to get stolen yeah, so, yeah. um, definitely do your homework on that and crime rates essentially. But for, in terms of the insurance, um, that's how it works. It's okay. pretty simple. Okay. Do you, uh, have you had much experience with that where your borrowers, um, have something stolen or have something vandalized yes. or even their whole freaking house burns down? Yes. <laughs> we haven't had anybody's house burned down. <laughs> we have had a tree fall on somebody's house yeah, on yeah. their roof after the whole thing was done. Wow. We had, uh, and it was, it was, actually a couple months back when we had that weird storm. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the neighbor's tree fell on his house. Uh. That was pretty bad. 
Um, and that was like a full renovation. We've had, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's actually pretty common, more than you think. Um, you yeah. know, the, like I said, the HVAC unit's getting taken out, um, people breaking in and stealing appliances. That's a huge one. Mm-hmm. Or stealing materials. If they see, if you can, make sure you put your materials away. If, if people can look in the house <laughs> and they see that you have awesome materials in there, even other contractors, you mm-hmm. know, they'll go in there and they'll take the materials and use them on other jobs. Mm. Um, so it's actually way more common than people think. Now, what happens is, again, back to the deductible. If the deductible's yeah, not, yeah. if it's too high, their deductible's $5,000, but they just had $2,000 of materials taken out, does it make sense? And so then they're out of pocket. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's just, that just comes with the business. It that's, does. That's the nature of the business. But that goes <laughs> back to why I tell people liquidity is key, right? Right. Goes back to that twelve thousand dollar guy versus the sixty thousand dollar guy. Sixty thousand dollar guy, he gets his materials taken out. Mm-hmm. Guess what? He has enough money to be able to sustain that overage, right? Yeah, yeah. Twelve thousand dollar guy, you know, if it's paint and flooring, you're less susceptible <laughs> to that, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's even but, stuff that you know some people can. Um, like I know Alex and I are, we're, we're, uh, we just started our own investing business recently and we're picking up our first couple of deals. And, you know, there's some, there's some deals that we've looked at that the rehab isn't very, isn't very much like it's maybe eight to 10,000 in rehab. Which is great, yeah. And, and a lot of it is cosmetic stuff, but it's like, you know, Alex has experience doing fencing and roofing and I've done, you know, some carpentry work. So it's like all of cool. that stuff that comes out in the bid, it's like, oh, we can knock this out in the weekend. Yeah. You know, like we don't have to pay a contractor. Like what they quoted is like four grand. That saves us almost half the budget of, of doing that. And yeah. it's, it's minor stuff, right? <clears throat> but, uh, and I know it's not necessarily good practice as an investor to be, you know, in, in, in the, uh, get your hands dirty depending on your level of want you know like some people enjoy that that's true that's true but i would also argue if you're an investor that has multiple properties going at the same time that's hard that's that's not a good that's not a good use of time yeah Yeah. and it's it's just better just just pay those people who know what they're doing and and they want the work you know like that's it's a win-win for everybody um but you know in in the situations where like if you are a brand new investor and you know you're you're really close on that threshold of can you afford it and can you not yeah. you know it's not necessarily cutting corners but it's finding places where you can save on costs yeah. and yeah. if you can do some of this stuff yourself that's great you know but um that's also you know if if you try it and then it doesn't work then then what you have to pay someone to come and undo we everything you've yeah. done <laughs> and then go and do it yeah <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah don't do it if you're not good at it let's just say yeah, that yeah. <laughs> If you've never done it before, chances are you probably You'll shouldn't. You'll find out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say that, like, um, for us, something new that's been cool is our dads, um, they're retiring. Mm-hmm. And so, like, my dad started a painting company. I'm like, <laughs> yes, this is great. So, like, our last flip, he went and painted the whole thing. And um, he's a little overly ambitious, so he, like, stayed in the house overnight, like, camped out. He, he just <laughs> likes stuff like that. And he got it all knocked out in a day. Something that would have probably cost us... Um, easily vaulted ceilings and everything easily yeah. three or four thousand oh, yeah. dollars he did it for like 1200 bucks so that's also cool building being able to build your team but if you're doing volume there's just no way you can do the work yourself sub it out yeah 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 so um i guess that brings us back to um with the the topic of the show of you know how, what you look for with borrowers but mm-hmm. 
you know, we've talked about the new investors, but what about the experienced investors, the return or like the repeat customers? Mm-hmm. Um, like, like with any business, business, I imagine that you have the right to refuse business. Like, is there Absolutely. any situation or, or uh, you know, a type of borrower that, you know, even if they've come to you several times that it's, it just may not be a good idea to do business with them or, you know, like, what kinds of repeat customers do you look for, in other words? Great question. Um, so for me as a person, and I can't speak for every lender, for me as a person, I'm really big on setting uh, boundaries and expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it needs to be likewise, right? I want to know the borrower's boundaries and expectations, and I'm very clear on what my boundaries and expectations are. Um, we really, I'll be honest with you for this particular question, there's not a whole lot of people that I've done consistent business with that I've come back and turned down just because those Mm. expectations and those boundaries have been set from the forefront. Right, right. If we work well together and you respect those expectations and those boundaries, then I mean, I do, I've done loans for the majority of my borrowers that have been with me for four or five years, you know, or I guess for four years since they've started investing since their first deal ever. Yeah. And I'm glad you say that because, um, like the very first podcast episode I did for Hillco is like episode 53 or 54 or something. But the very first episode that I did for Hillco, the topic was setting proper expectations. Mm -hmm. And I think that is critical regardless of what business you're in, if you're in business or not, like whatever you it is you're establishing a relationship with somebody and there's everybody communicates differently and setting those expectations leads to a much higher chance of success Absolutely. and even if success means you don't want to work with that person right um because it, i think it, it saves the headache of it, a long term it eliminates term. the stress yes yeah so and, and i'm glad i'm glad you're saying that because um i i would imagine if you have repeat customers coming back to you it's because it worked out and it worked well. Yes. And if you have that new person who's never done business with you and you set those expectations and they, for whatever reason, don't like them, they're, yeah. they're not going to come back. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's, that's good that you're essentially self weeding out those individuals that Absolutely. are, that are bad for business. Absolutely. And when, <clears throat> when you set those expectations up front, I just feel like things flow a lot smoother. The transparency is key for mm-hmm. me. Like mm-hmm. I will let you know up front what we need from you, what we expect throughout the duration of, of your loan process, um, after your loan has funded, what goes on from there. So there's not a whole lot of people that I turn down if they've done consistent business with me just because, you know, we flow at that point. They know what, yeah, th- what yeah. I expect. I know what they expect. Um, we respect each other's boundaries, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So that's been really well. So do you have any, uh, any clients that, um, you're at a point where like, like there's no more handholding. It's like, oh, yeah. it's like you just send a text yes. or an email and yes. then they handle everything. And then once they get to that next point where they need you, then they talk and it's kind yeah. of just like radio silence. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I actually, the majority of them, um, they get to a point in the system for our loan process is very, it's systematic, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. once they've done two or three with me, those are my favorite, you know, they're easy to work with. They know what I need. They mm-hmm. turn it in on time. It makes, it makes it easier for me to make their life easier because right, right. the whole process just goes smoother. We're able to fund the deal faster because everything's being turned in on time. They're proactive with what needs to be ordered. Mm-hmm. So those are my favorite, to be honest with you. Um, Obviously, it takes time to build that and to be able to know exactly what happens from start to finish, but 
once they do, it's usually about two or three deals. After that, it's pretty fluid. Okay. Okay. So what would you say is like, in your recollection, the fastest turnaround time on, on a deal that you've lent on? Uh, we have done a deal. It was a little over 24 hours. Um, and it was a deal, I think it was last year that we did. I feel like all of my years kind of flow Wait, so together. <laughs> you, you lent the money to do a deal and then 24 hours later it was... Funded. Okay. Oh, is that what you mean? No, I mean like um, the the from the time you, you gave them the funds to the time oh. they pay you back. Okay. So I would say it was probably about a week. A week? Um, mm-hmm. We had one borrower that came to me and he purchased a house downtown and um, closed on it, funded it. The following day, he went out there to go work on it. And some investors stopped by and was like, hey, are you the owner of this house? Made him a cash offer on the spot. <laughs> and he was like, he, I remember he called me and he was like, Jade, I don't know what to do. This is what they offered me. I'm like, take the offer. You're about to net 50 grand without putting anything into it. Yeah, yeah. So he did. I think that's kind of a, just like a, a streak of luck. You know? Yeah, like, no, it definitely was. And so that's totally outside the norm of like you acquire it with hard money for with the intention to fix it and flip yes. it or, or refinance and rent. Yeah. But that's like a totally different scenario. It was, it was, he didn't expect that to happen. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, are you sure you're okay with that? I'm like, yes, I want you to succeed. Don't worry about <laughs> us. Like we'll do another one, like succeed. I want yeah, you to yeah. make money. So it was a cash offer. And so they closed a couple days later and he paid us off. He was super excited. Um, and then he, he continued to do more after that. So I think that was probably the fastest flip anybody's done. Okay. What about the longest? Oh, geez. I had somebody that sat alone for like two and a half years. Wow. A hard money loan? Yes. <laughs> and I'm like not really sure why. We, they just, they, I don't know. They rented it out and they just that in it and we reached out to them multiple times like hey is everything going okay <laughs> they were like yeah and so eventually it got to the point where we were like hey like these are supposed to be six month loans we, we need to do something <laughs> <laughs> and so i think they ended up so they started with a six month loan but they did they extend yes they just, and kept, then they just kept extending yes over and over wow. and over again it was abnormally long it was one I of wonder, those. I like, wonder why. Like, were they not able to get a refinance loan, or did they I just not try? I don't know. That's the thing. Usually, borrowers, if something like that happens, they come back to me and they're like, "Hey, this is what's going on," and we figure out a solution. This one was weird. It was just they just sat in it and just kept extending. And when we reached out, we we're like, "Hey, you know, is everything okay?" And they're like, "Were they even cash flowing?" I, mean, I don't <laughs> think so. There's no way. I have yeah, no those idea. Payments like they would be. They're like depreciation on my taxes. Maybe that's yeah, what they were. I, I have no idea. It was very abnormal. It's kind of wild. And so, yeah, so we reached out to them. And again, it was just, they were okay. And so finally, I think they, um, I don't know if they refinanced or sold it. We got paid off, which is all that matters. But yeah, that was odd. I mean, that that's a pretty, uh, I guess, an impressive uh, return <laughs> on that loan. Cause no that's kidding. two and a half years of interest <laughs> payments. Yes, and not like... It wasn't even discounted interest, which didn't make any sense. We were just like, it was weird. So that was the longest one. Um, there are instances where borrowers are overly ambitious on the ARV. And mm -hmm. so they'll, even though the oh, appraisal came, comes yeah. back in lower, they still try and sell it for like $40,000 more. And they'll sit in it. 
and they just don't want to lower their prices. And, you know, as yeah, the investor, yeah. that's their prerogative. And I don't try and tell people what to do, mm-hmm. you know? So <clears throat> there are instances where it goes over a year, but typically people are in and out within 30 to 30 to like, I'm sorry, not 30 days, about uh, three to four months. Okay. Okay. Um, and that's, that's like best case scenario with maybe a contractor coming in late or finishing the job late or whatever. Like that's not any of these, like how tree fell on the house type of situation. No. Yeah. That was another <laughs> abnormal as over the years, you start to see weird stuff and you're like, I don't count anything out anymore. Yeah, so no, no those I, were like I was telling my wife, Laura, like, um, like in real estate, like something will happen yeah we don't know what we don't know when we don't know yeah, how you're big just like or bad waiting for it right? it's going to happen every single deal regardless yeah. like that's just the nature of yes. this business is going to happen yeah and the hard thing is for somebody that likes to plan everything yeah. not from the lending standpoint but from an investor standpoint yeah I have like my whole year planned out I work on mm-hmm. a calendar I have block schedules so for me that is hard because yeah. you just don't know what's going to happen right, and right. It could happen within the next couple hours. It could happen a month from now. You just never know. So you're like, yeah. I feel like real estate investing, you're just like on this roller coaster and you're just like waiting for that drop, you know, <laughs> like, the anticipation of it. Yeah. It keeps you, uh, it's, and keeps I think you one on of the, toes. one of the scary things, uh, um, and I guess it's also part of the fun about it, but, um, you know, if you haven't been through that type of uh, scenario before, yeah. you don't know how, how much to be prepared or how right. to prepare it to begin with. Like, right. I mean, the majority of, of the stuff that goes on, is going to be, has some kind of financial consequence, yes. right? Yeah, usually. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe house burns down, you know, the plumbing issue goes terribly terribly wrong uh you have a contractor that does work and then you have to undo their stuff and yes. bring another contractor yes. that all has a price tag to it Always. um and and until you go through it you don't really know like how much should i be setting aside in reserves yes. as just in case which goes back right. to our initial conversation of you don't know what you don't know don't be overly ambitious and make sure that your liquidity matches to the type of deal that you right. end up doing. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the, the more interesting uh, aspects of it is like, you know, when, when you're planning your business, like you said, for the whole year and you, and mm-hmm. you know that you can do a certain number of deals and you have X amount of dollars, but of the X amount of dollars and the return you anticipate, um, like how much of that should be set aside because yeah. like you don't know. Right. And yeah. I mean, sure. On a, on a deal by deal basis, like you, you there are certain things you can be aware of and prepare for. So like, if you know, you're going to do a flip in a bad side of town, mm-hmm. you know, that there's going to be vandalism, you know, hey, have some money set aside for at yeah. least two additional paint jobs in case yes. something happens. Another thing is, uh, the volume that you're doing at a time, right? Mm-hmm. Because rental properties, same thing, stuff happens all the time. So if you're one of those investors like myself that has a rental portfolio, I know for each property I have X amount set aside just in case something happens, something breaks or the tenant disappears and then you have Mm -hmm. to cover those monthly payments, you know? So or make if you sure go through evictions and you have to pay those fees been there, and done I, that. Yes. That, that costs. Yep. And then the, the tenant vandalizes the home. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of those cost money. And so when you are an investor, not only does the type of deal need to match your liquidity, but the volume that you're doing mm-hmm. also needs to match your liquidity. That way you don't, 
the last thing that you want as an investor is something to happen and you are not financially ready for that. And it can trigger just, you know, a domino effect of downfall, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, and I would also say too, um, especially for the new, newer investors, um, like budgeting finances to handle issues. That's, that's a, a big part of being a real estate investor, but also budgeting yourself emotionally. Because, yes. because yeah. I think there's so much attachment to the finance that it could it could really be detrimental in it's the long term. It's a mind game, right. yeah. It right. does play with your emotions I mean, for you, sure. You have you, and I think it kind of breaks up into two aspects of the emotional side. It's the like you're getting the deal and you're excited about it. You want that deal. You're happy to get the first deal under your belt. You want to do everything you can to make it work. You start becoming emotionally attached to that particular deal. And when something goes wrong, you you know, like as an investor, don't feel like it's your fault. Like don't feel like you second guessed yourself or you didn't, you didn't see something. Or don't get attached to that profit that you initially anticipated on making because that'll drive you crazy too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and then the other side of it too is also, um, you know, the, from the emotional standpoint uh, of being able to handle that, you know, that loss of control, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Oh, my house, my rental property just got struck by lightning, you know, like that's like, yeah, you know, there's a financial component to it, but you also have like the emotional, like, what about the renters and how, how do I explain all this stuff to them? Like, what do I have to do? Um, you know, and then there's the legal repercussions, the insurance Mm -hmm. repercussions and, um, like preparing yourself for those things I think is a lot harder to do because if you've never been through it, you don't know what to experience. Yeah. Like you can hear horror stories from other investors, yeah. um, but there's only so much you can do um, right. to, to be ready for stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that's why I say, it's, you know, it's kind of the interesting thing, kind of a little scary, you know, it's like you don't know what you don't know and something will happen, right. but what that is and how bad it is, we, we don't you know. You just don't know. Exactly. And I try and explain that to people all the time. Um, but it usually, I'll tell you, about 90% of the time, it goes in one ear <laughs> and then out the other. And then something happens and they are freaking out and they call me and I'm like, I told you. I yeah. told you. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it uh, even for me, and I've been doing this for years, it's still hard because I am a control freak. It is probably one of the hardest things for me as an investor is just knowing that stuff is going to happen and I can't always control it, Mm -hmm. but brings out the other side of you and the problems, the problem solving, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have to be a problem solver. You cannot focus on the the problem. You have to focus on the solution at all times as an investor. So that's definitely something that I've tried. I've continuously have to overcome as a control freak and, you know, planner, yeah. So, yeah. and yeah. it helps to have a team um, uh, that surrounds you, that mm-hmm. that thinks about those things. Be and and at, you know everybody has their own specialty, their own you know uh, what they're good at. Yeah. And having someone on, on your team that it, I, I call them like the natural worriers. You know, like they they worry That's about me. everything. <laughs> Uh, it's not so much that they're that they're worrying about it; it's that they're aware. Yes. And and you know the their thought process includes those things. Yes. And and for a lot of people, I don't think that's that's not a natural approach to how no. they work. Yeah. Um. And, and I, I'm one of those people. You know, I because I'm all about the variables. Like, um, I like having the control, but I also know that 
there are I have to account for those variables in my equations, my formulas, whatever. And I don't necessarily know what the true value of those variables are, but I know they're there. So what can I do to mitigate them mitigating or, the or risk. Make, yes. make that variable as low as possible? Um, and that's where things like, you know, in, in other operations for a business, that's why you have disclosures. That's why you have waivers. That's yes. why you have insurance, you know, to, to bring those things down. And I, and I've, uh, worked with a previous company where that, uh, you know, I was the, the professional worrier for that company, you yeah, know, and that's me. And, and yeah. I, I created an entire set of documents for the investing clientele that didn't exist before. And, I, you know, to me, I thought that was crazy. Like, how have you been in business for 10 years and right. not have a, had a single one of these like waivers yes. or, or like uh, disclosure statements or anything? I came from the legal world, so I completely yeah, agree with yeah. that. <laughs> and, and coming from, a, you know, the securities world where, yeah. you know, uh, you Everything you do is watched by the SEC. Uh, everything you do is is overseen by FINRA. You know, like there's there's a very like strict process of what you can can't do, and even what you can and can't say or even imply. Yeah. And like that that coming from that background going into this, it was like trickles over. It was like wait, I know there's these regulations don't exist in like this realm of this industry, mm-hmm. but you should still have best practices that that you know, mirror things like that. Yes, so that, exactly. uh, and, and a, a great, a great example I have was, um, an investor purchased a property. Um, I want to say it was near Mankey park. Um, but it needed, it was a total gut job it needed total renovation. And, um, so we sold them the property. They had a budget for rehab. Um, uh, but, we gave them on a disclosure document that told them they needed to have insurance because they were considered the owners. It was their property. And then until they fixed it up and sold it, um, it was their responsibility. And for whatever reason in the, in the conversations, it must've been lost in translation. They thought we were trying to upsell them on an insurance product. So they didn't buy the insurance. They had no insurance coverage on the house. So they went and started doing the renovations. And then like three weeks in, um, a lot of the stuff they had put into the house was pulled out of the house. So they, they had that incident of like the copper wires uh, being pulled, um, the panel box being torn out. Um, like there's just like everything that could go wrong in a flip went wrong on that, on that property. (laughs) So then they came back and tried to sue, um, the company for, for, you know, misleading them or whatever and it's like well we have the disclosure document saying that you know you you we explained this to you and you still didn't do it so it's like it's not on us like we did tell you right um but had that been a situation where there was no disclosure documents because nobody was thinking about these things most people don't right Yeah. yeah and that could have been a really big problem yeah um but from the investor standpoint like those things need to be thought about too. And yeah. I would also say, uh, arguing for the benefit of the investor, if you're doing business with someone who doesn't have disclosures of any kind, you probably don't want to do business with them. Which is why it's so hard for me to buy from wholesalers sometimes mm-hmm. because like I'm dealing with one right now, for instance, we're buying it and the owner wants a lease back. Those get really sticky and mm-hmm. she wants to stay for like three or four months. Mm-hmm. And so the wholesaler, they don't have any promulgated forms. They're just drafting it like 
such and such is going to stay in the house for 90 days and <laughs> they have it signed. And I'm like, you've left out so many pertinent details. I can't take over this assignment of contract because you don't have everything outlined properly. Like mm -hmm. they don't understand that once you assign that over all of those terms that you initially agreed to transfer over to me. Mm -hmm. And once I buy that house, that's now my responsibility. Right. And so these wholesalers, again, it goes back to just not being properly informed. Mm -hmm. A lot of fly by night. Oh, I saw he made $30,000 on a deal. I want to be a wholesaler too. Yeah. They don't, they just don't educate themselves enough to be able to fill out those proper forms or have things properly drafted by attorneys, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're assigning those, there's a twofold to that because then the, the investor like me, for instance, had I not asked for that prior to signing anything or mm -hmm. <clears throat> I would have been screwed. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, uh, uh <clears throat> the great things about investors working with a hard money lender like you, mm -hmm. because before they even, they can get to the closing table, they need to obviously secure the finances to acquire that property. Um, and, you're like an additional check and balance Yes, because agreed. you're going to look at that contract. You're going to verify those numbers and make sure that, you know, what they're telling you versus what is on paper line up so that you can go and verify that information. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'd imagine if you're going through that stuff and you see that there's like, where's the lead based paint addendum, you know, like, yeah. like that's kind of, that's a critical thing in, 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 in the application Beyond process. Beyond just contracts too, but, even, even things And that's like also title. where the title company comes in, yeah. you know, I mean, title companies <clears throat> should catch those things, but you know, you're just an additional measure to verify that, right. Hey buddy, you probably shouldn't be going into this deal. Right. I <laughs> agree. Know? Even with surveys, I don't want to have to mm -hmm. go through that whole thing, but even surveys, you know, people don't even know what encroachments are. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that second set of eyes or that knowledge, you buy a house and then you mm -hmm. can't resell it because you've got an encroachment and nobody was there to tell you otherwise. Yeah. You don't know what's actually covered in your title policy because most people don't even know how to read them. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. And it goes back to the, <laughs> you don't know what you don't you know. You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's my favorite phrase. <laughs> you uh, you got to ask those questions and kind of dig deep. And, and at some point you, get, you just got to get uncomfortable, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but that that's real estate stuff is going to happen and it will happen. Um, what happens? We never know. Yeah. It's, it's just, that's part of the, that's part of the game. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we're coming up to the end of the episode. Um, I think we, we had a lot of, uh, a great, uh, content on this episode, kind of just springboarding and jumping around on different topics. But, uh, ultimately when it comes to an investor, you know, working with a hard money lender, um, what other tips, tricks, advice would you give them in, in terms of creating the best quality relationship with their hard money lender? Communication is key. Uh, one thing that I always stress to my borrowers is pay attention to your emails and answer the phone calls, right? <laughs> Especially when you're trying to close in five days. Yeah. Um, so communicate as much as possible and pay attention to what they're asking for, right? Mm -hmm. There are documents that go through and there are things that have to be ordered. So as long as you're proactive and you're communicating with me and we call, we text, we yeah. email, yeah. like we go above and beyond to communicate. Um, so just make sure that you reciprocate that and that you're paying attention as things go through. We can only help as much as you allow us to as a lender, right? right? right. So if you want to close quickly, we're here to support you on that. So just communicate, make sure that things are being ordered on time. Make sure you turn things in on time. Mm -hmm. That would be my number one tip. Um, in terms of 
of a tip for borrowers who are looking for um, hard money lenders again and I mentioned this on our last podcast make sure that you ask for a full set of their fees for their mm-hmm. terms I get messages all the time what are your points and what are your interest rates Lord have mercy. There is so much more that goes into it than just that. So ask for the full set of terms, get loan estimates, right? Um, interview them just the way, the same way that, you know, they're going to interview you essentially. Yeah. yeah. So, so on, on that, that brings up a, a, a question that I actually had um, from our last conversation was um, when someone asks the hard money lender for their schedule of fees and all those other stuff, how much of that is in reality negotiable? Um, most of it, it depends really depends on the, the lender. Like for us, for instance, we don't have a bunch of junk fees, so it's really hard to negotiate downward right. from that. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of lenders that will do a lower interest rate, um, but they're going to do escrow fees, application mm-hmm. fees, um, analyzation fees, early prepayment penalty fees. So when you have a long set of fees, it's easier to negotiate them down. Right. For us, it's a little bit harder just because we don't have any of those. So we don't yeah, try yeah. and bulk our overhead and fees. We try and we have two fees and that's it. And it's what goes to pay our attorneys to draft up your documents. Yeah, so yeah. Um, it just depends on the company and their their laundry list of fees. If it's astronomical, sure, sure. then you probably have a, a higher likelihood of being able to negotiate some of them down. Um, if it's not as if it's not as long of a list, you know. What I would say is do a couple deals with them first and then try and negotiate from there. Okay. Okay, cool. And um, for the audience listening, how can they get a hold of you how, if they want to borrow and apply for a hard money loan? Um, what's the best way to reach you? Um, so you can call our local office, which is 210-960-1019. Janine is there from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, and she is there to take calls and answer any questions that you guys have. And you can also check us out online at www.longhorninvestments.com. All of our fees are transparent on our website. So you can go ahead and check that out. We've got some videos, um, which explain the hard money process, some tips, testimonials, and last but not least, the application. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast, I assume you're also following us on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media outlets. Um, and you will find a lot of content um, featuring Longhorn Investments and Jade Flores and the team because they work closely together with us on you know, working with not just our investors, but on some deals together. And, you know, uh, from a social media standpoint, they are our sponsors. So we're super grateful for that. Uh, And there's a lot of great content on our social media pages uh, about working with Longhorn and with hard money lending in general. Uh, So definitely check that out. And again, thanks for uh, being on the show with, uh, with us today, Jade. And you guys, thanks for listening. Until next time, have a good one.